All right, we're going to be in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 3 is where we'll start, and then we're going to be uh, all over the place in this book. Um, I have got way too much to do in 45 minutes here, uh, and because of that, we're going to be all gas and no break. So I hope you guys are ready, because we're, uh, we're getting ready to roll through the book of Esther. And I tell you what, this has been one of my favorite sermons to prepare that I have ever done. We'll see how, <clears throat> how it comes out, but I thoroughly enjoyed this, and I think you are going to see, <clears throat> sorry, I think you're going to see the depth and the power and the just amazing way in which Scripture ties together through the rest of the story of the book of Esther. Honestly, I wanted to break this into two sermons, but the only real way to communicate everything I want to communicate is to try to get it all into one. So I, we got to go, and we got to go quick. Uh, so far, we've covered a few characters. One of the main characters was King Ahasuerus also known as King Xerxes, opened the story by <clears throat> throwing this massive pre-war party for his governors uh, to kind of get them on his side, very much concerned with his uh, public appearance. And then his queen Vashti refused to show up at the grand finale to be a part of the entertainment for the evening, so he kicks her out. And then last week we saw where uh, the, the title character for our story was introduced, Hadassah, a.k.a. Esther, uh, she was an orphaned Jewish woman that was forced to take part in this king's uh, contest for a new queen. Uh, and when she did decide to compete, now she was forced to, to be in this contest, but when she did decide to compete, she decided to win. Uh, that is what she was there to do. She worked every angle and made sure she won the king's affection after spending a night with him. This was her ticket to secure her own safety, her family's safety, for generations to come after her. It is a powerful story. It is a seedy, very kind of icky, gross story if you read through it. Uh, but for her, this was like a lottery ticket to be able to win this and what it does for her family and for her security. She became Queen Esther. And then we left last week with a bit of a cliffhanger. Her cousin Mordecai, uh, who had basically raised her, had implored her to use her position as queen to intervene on behalf of her people because something terrible was about to happen. He told her that it might be for this very moment that she had become queen. Esther then, even though it may have meant her life, decided she would indeed, indeed intervene and then uttered these very famous faithful words, if I perish... I perish. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go back in the story a little bit, and then we're going to kind of look at the, the other side of how we got to those famous words, if I perish, I perish, and then we're going to fast forward to the rest of uh, the story. Uh, and like I said, I don't know if I'm going to have time to do everything that I, that I want to do in here, but man, there's so much good uh, stuff. And I'm sorry if you were looking for a verse-by-verse -verse breakdown through this book, which is typically how we go through it. Uh, certainly we could do that and we could pull out a lot out of this. Uh, but, but really, the way this story is told, it's kind of its own self-contained unit. And so it's hard to break it down without covering the whole thing. So let's back up a little bit. How did our hero Esther end up having to risk her life in the first place? Why was she put into this situation? That is chapter 3 of the book of Esther. We skipped that so far. And we're going to get to know two more characters that really the action of the book follows throughout the rest of this. So Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, this is after Queen Esther had become Queen Esther, uh, before 
before this, this fateful moment of if I perish, I perish. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. Now, Haman's an important guy, so you want to listen and pay attention to him. So he, he promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him to set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So this is our other character, Mordecai. We've briefly met him so far, but now we're going to get to know him really well. So we got Haman, we got Mordecai. Haman is kind of like the right-hand man to the king. The king has said, Haman, you're in charge. You've got all kinds of power. Make everyone bow to you. Everyone should bow to Haman because of his position. But Mordecai is going to be a troublemaker, and he says, I'm not going to bow. Then the king's servants who were at the, this is verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Remember, this is basically the known world. So all Jews to be killed throughout the known world. So here we are. Here is the moment that drives the action for the rest of the story. In one corner, we have Haman, right-hand man to the king, full of himself and full of power. He's got everything going for him. In the other corner, we have some guy named Mordecai. He's in the, 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 the royal courts. He's in the, uh, the Persian royal courts, but there's really no, uh, no essence in which we see that he has any kind of power. He's just there. We don't know why he's there, why he's able to be in that place, but he doesn't have any real sense of power. So Haman versus Mordecai. Um, and at this point, really, all we know about Mordecai is that he is a Jew. Now, we know that, and as far as we knew, no one else knew that, but his secret kind of came out. He was, he was identified as a Jew, and then he is also the guy that had raised Esther. That's what we know about Mordecai. Now, however this uh, self-important, powerful man, uh, Haman, shows up, he, he shows up and he demands, he says, Everyone needs to bow to me. By edict of the king. This is not just Haman saying I'm important. This is the king's signature that says, hey, Haman is important. And everyone needs to bow. But Mordecai refuses. He will not bow the knee. Again, the book doesn't tell us why he doesn't, but it gives us a hint whenever it talks about his faith and says that he was a Jew. So we can probably assume it's tied to his faith and his unwillingness to bow to anyone but God himself. As you can imagine, this does not make Haman very happy. Haman's pretty ticked off about this. So he tries to figure out what to do about it. Now it says this weird thing. It says that he disdained to lay his hands on Mordecai alone, which means having Mordecai killed would not be sufficient for him. He didn't just want Mordecai dead. He wanted something more. He had something bigger in mind. He doesn't just want him dead, but he wants all the Jews dead. And Haman sets to work to use his powerful position to make sure this happens. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that seems a bit extreme to me. Does it not seem a bit extreme to you? you got this one guy who won't bow down, but now Haman says, I want all the Jews killed. Like, there's something that doesn't line up there. Why would he make such a drastic uh, thing? It seems like a bit of an overreaction. Uh, it does seem like that, but there's a reason. And this reason ties into much larger biblical themes. I hope you all are ready for this. You note takers, this one's for you. I don't always, I don't always uh, throw one out there for you, but if you're a note taker, this, this one is for you. Uh, so get your pens ready because we're getting ready to take a trip here. We're going to take a trip way back into the Old Testament and then we're going to move back to this time. And it's going to teach us all about the way the Bible works, the story of the Old Testament works. And I, I could argue that this, this story that we're going to trace through Esther is truly the theme of the entire Bible. So we're going to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 17. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. We're getting ready to take a pretty good journey here. So uh, Exodus chapter 17. And there we have the story of the people of Israel who had, uh, who had left Egypt, were, were, were still uh, moving their way to the promised land. They hadn't made it there yet, so they were a weary bunch of travelers, always on the move. And then we have this story of how they were attacked by a group of people called the Amalekites, one of the, one, one of the ites that nobody's like, who are these people? I don't understand what these people are when you read through the Old Testament. It's one of the ites, and it's the Amalekites. This is the battle, if you'll remember, whenever, uh, whenever the Amalekites would, would attack, if Moses had his arms raised, they would, then Israel would begin to win the battle. But if his arms started to fall, then the Amalekites would win the battle. And so what had to happen is they had to prop Moses' arms up and hold his arms up until the battle was over and Israel had won the entire thing. You guys remember that story, how they had to hold up Moses' arms, right? So this is that battle. That's what this is all about. And uh, uh, so uh, uh, the king is Amalek. That's how they get the name, the Amalekites. The king is Amalek, and he had attacked Israel at one of its weakest moments, and God vowed that he would never forget. Exodus chapter 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. This is after the battle was over. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. To generation. Now this becomes true if you read throughout, especially the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. If you read through there, you will see that over and over and over again, these two groups of people, the Israelites and the uh, Amalekites, are often in conflict with one another. If you move forward a few generations, you see how this plays itself out again when these two people are at war with one another. So We'll move forward to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we have the story, this is 1 Samuel 15, we have the story of Israel's relatively new king, Saul. So King Saul uh, is on the scene. He is king, and he's everything that you want a king. He's tall, he's rich, he's strong, he's good-looking, he's charismatic, he's a warrior, he's a man's man, he's everything that you want. But he doesn't quite have the success that you would expect for a man in his position. 
God had told Israel they didn't need a king. But they said, we want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king. And this is the man that was chosen. So they put Saul in place, and he was to go, and he was to lead them. And initially, things went well for Saul. Some things went very well for them and for him until they didn't. And in 1 Samuel 15, we have the story of God commanding Saul to lead his people into battle and to finish the job against none other than the Amalekites. Wipe them out. Be done with the Amalekites. Kill every single one of them right down to their oxen and their donkey and their sheep. Kill everyone and everything. It's, put an, it's time to put an end to this generational conflict. And we're going to put an end to it by erasing them off the face of the earth. This is what happens. It's time to repay them for what they did to Israel as they fled from Egypt. So Saul does this. Almost. They attack the Amalekites, they whip their tail, they kill all kinds of them, they do all kinds of things, but Saul doesn't do it completely. He doesn't completely wipe them out. He leaves the livestock, he leaves some of the plunder for his soldiers to take, and he leaves their king, Agag. So he doesn't fully do what he has been called to do. Do you guys remember what happened? If you know this story, this is when God says that he regrets that he made Saul king. And then he turns his back on Saul as king of Israel. And Samuel the prophet says that God has removed his favor from you and you will be removed as king, Saul. Saul pleads and he says, please don't do this. I, I, I was trying to do something good here. I, I wasn't trying to be a bad guy. And Samuel basically says, you were not obedient and that is what the Lord desires. And so Saul is removed as king. And then Samuel, the prophet, turns to King Agag and he finishes what Saul should have. And it says that he hacked Agag to pieces. It's a nice image for you. So we have Israel versus the Amalekites again. And then we have Israel uh, versus the Amalekites, but not just that, Saul versus Agag. King Saul versus King Agag. And this should shed some light on what is happening now in the book of Esther. So let's quickly read a couple of verses that kind of draw out this theme, right? So we're, we're tracing this down, these two people at war with each other through generations, all kinds of history between them. In Esther chapter 2, verse 5, we read this last week, but we just went right by it, which is easy to do with a genealogy. We read this, Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, which I'm going to assume you probably don't because these are not, these are not names we use a whole lot, it's an easy one to, to really blast by there, but there's an important thing there. The tribe of Benjamin just so happens to be the same tribe that was the tribe of King Saul. But Saul isn't listed as a relative here. However, Shimei and Kish are. Well, who is Shimei and Kish? Well, Shimei, it says, was from the household of Saul, likely one of Saul's sons. Kish is Saul's dad. So it intentionally skips over Saul, but it talks about Saul's dad. It talks about one of Saul's sons, or at least somebody from Saul's household. It notably leaves out Saul, 
because he's not somebody that you're going to bring up if you're going to talk about the, uh, the, the, the rich history for someone because Saul was disgraced. But the author makes it clear that both Esther and Mordecai, remember their cousins, are descendants of the former king. So let's look at our other character, the antagonist, Haman. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Just read this a second ago, blasted right by it. didn't mean anything to you when I read it. But it says, after these, th- after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Haman the Agagite, as in King Agag. Right? So now you have a little more texture to what's happening between Haman and Mordecai. Haman is going to take this opportunity to write what was done, what was, what was done to his people generations ago. He says, I'm going to even the score for what was done to my long-distant grandfather, King Agag. Whenever they tried to wipe us out, I'm going to now wipe the Jews out because I have the power to do this. This is what's happening, and this is why Haman wants to eliminate all the Jews. These two people have centuries of rivalry before them. They do not stand in opposition to one another in isolation. They stand on the shoulders of massive battles and rivalries, and ones in which the Jews have typically gotten the better of the Amalekites. So when Haman finds himself in Persia and in power, Mordecai's refusal to bow is just the spark that he needs to say, now it's time to settle the score The Jews are done. So that's how we come to this kind of epic. So now this is not just, but this is, you know, kind of a giant collision of histories here. If you keep reading in Esther 3, Haman convinces the Hashuaris that all the Jews are dangerous by kind of telling a few lies, stretching a few truths. And then Mordecai's refusal to bow was just the tip of the iceberg for what's going to come from these Jews. They will rebel. Ahasuerus, always concerned about public perception, says he can't have this. So he goes along with Haman's plan and he says, this is fine, kill the Jews. Which brings us to chapter 4 and what we looked at last week. Mordecai begs Esther to intervene. And do you remember what he asked of her? Now we, we know the for such a time as this, but let's just reread what it says here in verse 12. Esther chapter 4, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think of yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So just because you think you're in the king's palace, you're safe. You are not. You are not safe. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai knows God is not going to forsake them. But he says, Esther, if you don't stand up and do something, it will come from another place. And then what does he say? But you and your father's house will perish. Mordecai knows what he's doing. Mordecai's playing on that family history and the interaction between King Saul, the distant grandfather, and King Agag. Haman, Mordecai, Esther against Haman, Mordecai against Haman. He is playing on that. And he is saying, not only are you going to miss your chance to redeem your your great, 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 great grandfather's name who did not do what he was commanded to do, not only are you going to miss on that, 
but you're going to completely miss on God's blessing that comes along with it. It may be, it may be that you're here for just such a time as this, not just to save the Jews, but to redeem your family line for all the disobedience from Saul long ago. So Mordecai's playing on both of those feelings there. So now Esther has a chance to reverse and to change the storyline of her family lineage. She's not the cause of the problem, but she has a chance to be the Savior. And this is why she says, if I perish, I perish. Because all of this is feeding into this moment. She manages to go and see the king. She approaches him. This is kind of where we left off last week, the cliffhanger from last week. He goes and he approaches her the moment when she could be dead because he was not, she was not summoned. Turns out, he's pretty happy to see her. It's a pretty much kind of a non-event. Like, oh, hey, Esther, good to see you. That's pretty much how it goes. Like, it's, it builds to this big thing, but then it's a, pretty, it's a pretty easy thing. And then Esther goes to work. Always the shrewd schemer, she begins to plan. She says, uh, that she, she comes to the king, and the king says, Ask me what you want. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he, she says, I just want you and Haman to come to a feast. It'll start tomorrow. Come to a feast. And the king says, sure. And they set the date. And then he tells Haman, Haman, you're coming with me. This is what she asks. Meanwhile, while Esther begins planning this banquet, Haman has got his own plans. Haman is in the process of having the gallows constructed specifically the gallows in, in, in the Old Testament at this time wouldn't have been like a noose for hanging. It would have been large poles to be impaled on. That's what it would have been. And so what's happening at this time is that Haman is having the gallows, these impaling poles, being built just for Mordecai. So he's getting all this stuff built ready for this day where he can exact his revenge on Mordecai and the Jewish people. And you can almost see this playing out like a movie. Like in one part of the palace you have the queen feverishly planning for this feast, making everything just right, making sure that, that all the servants are doing their task and getting the food ready and making sure everything is ready for this grand feast for the king. And then this other part of the palace out in the courtyard you walk and you see the, the construction workers at work building the gallows, hammering the nails, ready to construct this in these large poles for Mordecai to be killed on. These two things happening at the same time, completely independent of one another, and you have to wonder what in the world is about to happen. What are they going to do? And then it just so happens that that night before the feast, King Ahasuerus cannot sleep. So what does a king over three million miles of uh, uh, three million square miles of territory do for uh, bedtime reading when he can't sleep? He has his servants read of all the great things that have happened around him, the book of great deeds, memorable deeds. So they begin to read this. It's a good bedtime story for him. And as they begin reading, a story is told about Mordecai. What a coincidence. This is where they opened up to read this. A story is told about Mordecai and how Mordecai had spoiled a plot by some of the king's men to kill the king. This is in chapter 2, if you want to go back and read that. So they read this, and the king is like, oh yeah, I totally forgot about this guy. I totally forgot that this guy had done this. That was a great act. Something should have been done for this man. Did we do anything for this guy? Did you do anything? Did anybody send him flowers? Nobody did anything. Okay, what are we going to do for this guy? 
which is where we pick up chapter 6, verse 3. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? So he just heard somebody outside. Who is that that's out there? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. What a coincidence. To speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for them. So picture this. Haman is walking into the king's court so that he could go to the king and say, Hey, remember that thing I told you about the Jews? I got one Jew who won't honor me, won't bow his knee, one Jew specifically that I want to have killed. His name is Mordecai. This is where Haman is coming to see the king at that moment. That's why he's there. And the king said, let Haman come in. Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king said to him, a nice little hypothetical, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, "Whom whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman assumes this hypothetical is about himself. He's like, what would the king do to honor me? That's a good question, king. Let me answer that for you. And, the, and, he, and Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. You think Haman has some illusions of grandeur there before him? And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on a horse throughout the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes, uh, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Can you imagine Haman's face in that moment? This is fantastic. This is pure comedy. This is hilarious. So he says, this is great. He's going to honor me. And it gets completely turned on him. It gets completely turned on him. So Haman has to do all this stuff that he thought was going to be to honor him. He now has to honor Mordecai. He was going to have Mordecai killed on the gallows. And now he has to put the king's robes on him. And he puts him on the king's horse. And he has to go and tend to Mordecai. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman has to take Mordecai on a parade through the city saying, the king likes this guy, the king likes this guy, the king likes this guy, the king likes this guy. Over and over and over and over. And he's talking about the guy he was going to have killed. It's one of the funniest things in scripture. It's hilarious. It is a great picture and it is a perfect picture of what happens all throughout this book of the great reversals that happen. Total role reversals. The king had unknowingly recommended that Mordecai be praised and honored and that Haman would be the one to do it. But for Haman, this is just the beginning of a very, very bad turn of events. Esther has her banquet for the king and for Haman, so they come back in from their parade, they head to their banquet, Haman walks in, he sees Esther there. After a couple of days, Esther finally gets to the whole point of the charade and the whole point of this banquet. Esther chapter 7, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, 
If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, she's answering. He, he said, all right, you're doing this big feast for me. What is it that you really want, Esther? He says, let my life be granted for me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with those with the loss of, to the king. And then King Ahasuerus said to Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? So who's doing this to you, Esther? What are you talking about? How is this possible that this has happened? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy has done this, wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So Esther lays it all out. She lays out what has happened. She lays out how Haman has kind of manipulated this situation. She lays out that she is a Jew and that her people are the ones that are about to be killed. Haman has abused his power. He's coerced the king into a law that would eventually cause the death of her people and even her and her cousin Mordecai. He lays it all out. He says, king, she says, king, you've got to stop this. The king becomes outraged that he had been used by Haman. And the king then sentences Haman to death right then and there. Haman freaks out. He tries to beg for mercy. He throws himself on the queen asking for mercy, but there is no mercy to come. And then in Esther chapter 7, verse 9, we read this. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. That's a serious role reversal. Haman is impaled on the very poles that he built for Mordecai. Killed right there. After this, there's some legal and technical wrangling to do to undo the command and the king had enacted from Haman. It's a, agreed that uh, because this is, again, the law of the, the Persians and the Medes, it can't be changed. Uh, the king can't go back. He, he has to save face. So instead, he enacts another law that says, I tell you what, Jews, this is not going to be a genocide. In fact, you are welcome to do your own attacking and defend yourselves. You do not have to just take this. And so the Jews are now able to defend themselves from their attackers. There would be no genocide. And in fact, something greater would happen. Esther chapter 8, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear that the Jews had, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And then chapter 9, verse 1, a great little verse here. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, in the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the jews hoped to gain mastery over them the reverse occurred the jews gained mastery over those who hated them you can read the rest of the chapter and what all happens here but the day was supposed to be the end of the jewish people 
but it actually became a great day of victory to be celebrated for generations to come. God had reversed it all. He had turned it all on its head. In the most dire of moments, when it looked as though the Jewish people had no hope, it had all been reversed. Haman had honored Mordecai. Haman, and as we'll see in a minute later, his sons were killed on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Esther had stepped up and sought to rewrite her family story and had become the savior of her people. The day the Jews were supposed to be annihilated was instead the day that the Jews were exalted. It is a story of role reversals from the first chapter to the last. In chapter 9, verse 1, we have this little phrase that summarizes so much of this book and frankly is a great little summary of the gospel. You could do worse than these three words. It's just three words. It says, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. You see, what God did in the book of Esther was a picture of how God always works. He takes what is weak to shame the wise. He takes what is supposed to be the moment of darkest defeat and makes it into the moment of greatest victory. He takes what should happen and then he flips it. The reverse occurred is a great summary of the gospel. In just a few weeks, we plan to have our Good Friday service. This service is a dark, heavy evening of reflecting on the death of Christ. But we call it Good Friday for a reason. Because in God's economy, the death of His innocent Son becomes our greatest moment of victory. What Satan thought was his greatest hour of victory was in fact his most stunning defeat. The reverse occurred. Paul quotes in Corinthians, but he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Doesn't that sound like the book of Esther? Doesn't that sound like the same story? Don't you hear the echoes of that in the Easter story? Out of the echoes, out of the, 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 the shout from the Old Testament there, it, it echoes and it rings in our ears. In fact, let's read one more piece of the book of Esther. This is the description of the Jewish holiday of Purim, which was just celebrated this past Thursday, Friday. So just two days ago, they celebrated this holiday. A day marked by, uh, by, by fun, a day marked by celebration and costumes, for the, for the, a, a day marked by just so much joy. It's, it's considered the most exuberant of holidays for the Jewish people. Esther chapter 9, verse 24. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He, and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, that's the word for lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan, that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And therefore they call these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, then it goes on to describe how they will celebrate this holiday for generations and generations to come. Doesn't that sound like Good Friday to you? When the thing that was supposed to be Dark Friday, Defeat Friday, End It All Friday, Jesus is Dead Friday, it's Good Friday. 
Take what the enemy meant for evil and then throw it in his face when you see what God has done with it. If you're a Christian, you know the power of the greatest reversal of all for us. That in our, in our sins, we should be forgotten, we should be punished, we should be, we should be dismissed and, and the wrath poured out on us by God. But in His grace, the reverse occurred. We are not forgotten, but remember, just like the Jews in the book of Esther, we should be punished, but instead we are made righteous in His sight. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The reverse occurred. We should be punished for our sin. But instead, we are made whole, made righteous through Christ. You see, the book of Esther is like so much of the Old Testament. It is just a picture, a preview, a shadow, a type. Remember we talked about that, a type pointing us to the cross. Pointing us forward to the cross. And saying, do you see how I was faithful to my people? Do you see how in the darkest moment I was still there and I was still working? So now the Jewish people celebrate their holiday of how God was faithful to them. We celebrate Good Friday of God's ultimate faithfulness to us in the cross. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what we celebrate. This is what what we come back to as, as Christians is a beautiful, beautiful picture. So now what I want to do, if you are a Christian, if you have your, um, your communion cups here, you can take those out. If you don't have one, you're welcome to grab one there in the back. And I want to do the exact same thing that the Jews do in Purim, how they throw this in their face, how they throw the, 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 this, um, what should be this ultimate defeat, and they throw it back in, the, in Satan's face, and they say, no, 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 in our darkest moment is when Christ was most present. This is what we do in the Lord's Supper. We celebrate how the reverse occurred. And how what should have been the greatest moment of our defeat was instead the moment of our victory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul writes, talking about it. He's going to take off this little clear film at the top. We'll take out the wafer here, the bread first. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, as you taste that that bread, as you taste that juice, may you be reminded of God's grace in your life, that it's available to you. That there is no sin that, that, that cannot be forgiven if you will come to Christ and ask him that he forgive it. There is no life that is too far gone, as we saw with Esther last week. There is no sin that cannot be redeemed. That our faithfulness going forward is what God calls us to. It is a beautiful picture. And we celebrate what God has done on the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we are... I am stunned. I know you are sovereign. I confess that you are sovereign. I confess it every day, for that is where I find my hope. But even in your sovereignty, I... I, I so often fall, fall short in seeing just how powerful you are and just how great you are. And I can be consumed with my own guilt, my own shame. I can be consumed with my own selfishness and my own gain. Father, none of us in here deserve mercy. We all deserve justice. Father, may we worship you as a people who believe the reverse occurred. That justice was given instead to the innocent man, Jesus Christ. And that his righteousness was placed on us, credited to us on our behalf. And that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.